This morning we are returning to our sermon series that we just began two weeks ago from the Gospel of Matthew. So if you will turn in your copy of God's Word or uh, in your bulletins or the Blue Bibles to Matthew uh, chapter 3, you will recall that two weeks ago uh, when we looked at this, we looked at the first chapter in particular, the genealogy of Jesus Christ, and that is followed by uh, the story of the Annunciation of Christ to Joseph, his birth, the visit of the wise men, uh, the flight down into Egypt, the, the persecution of Herod, and then the return to Nazareth. And today we come to chapter 3, the ministry of John the Baptist. Now, by way of reminder, uh, the Gospel of Luke gives us the background of that, right? And we read some of the stories about Zechariah and Elizabeth in, uh, in the Gospel of Luke during Christmas time. And John, in his Gospel, uh, the, the Gospel writer John, writes this about John the Baptist. He says in chapter 1, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. Now, when we come to the Gospel of Matthew, where we are today, or if we were in the Gospel of Mark, we will see that both of them jump right into talking about John and the ministry of John without providing us any introduction. They just go right uh, into what John is doing. So let me read for us this portion of God's Word today. I have uh, titled the sermon this morning, Repentance and Its Fruits. Uh, It's a little bit of a riff on uh, the Jonathan Edwards book, Charity uh, and Its Fruits. And so we're we're thinking about repentance. That's more of the focus today, as Paul says about John's baptism. John's baptism was a baptism of repentance, as John will affirm himself in uh, this section that we've got here before us today. So here, the Word of God. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, "'You brood of vipers!' Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For, I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees." Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, 
But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. The word of God. Lord, thank you for your word. We thank you for your word, even when the passages that are before us, uh, whether we're reading as a family or privately or uh, as a small group or today, as your congregation together, even when they're hard and uh, they cut us and cut into us, we thank you for uh, this word and all the truthfulness of it. Be with us today as we consider these things. And Lord, we pray that you would give us ears to hear and hearts and minds to uh, apply these things that we're, we're hearing today from your word. Be with us then, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. What do you think of John? Whether from just the reading that I've done for us right here or from your past experience of uh, your, your knowledge of scripture, your having read this and other passages in the past, what do you think of John the Baptist? This is a question that I uh, sometimes ask when we are in the prophets. Would you want to invite him over for dinner? Is he the guy you'd like to have in your house as a dinner guest? John is certainly a fascinating character, and Matthew is going to bring us back to John uh, a number of times throughout this gospel. So today we don't need to say everything that there is to say about John, but he, he functions as something of a preparatory litmus test for the main question. The main question, of course, from the Gospels is, what do you think about Jesus? So I, I said, what do you think about John? That's kind of question number one to get us to the bigger question, which is, what do you think of Jesus? John is compelling. And every time that I get to this portion in one of the Gospels, I find him to be troubling. I find him to be somewhat uncomfortable, as well as somewhat enigmatic as well, but he's also irresistible. You're drawn to him, and that seems to be the same way that the people of his day were reacting to his ministry. He seems to have the ability, when you come up to him, and I'm describing it this way, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of reading this text here, he seems to have the ability to see through us to kind of see through the clothing that we wear, to see through the expressions, expressions on our faces, the, the makeup that we might wear, uh, the, 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 the way that we would put ourselves forward. He can, he can see through all of that and, and go right into our hearts and our souls and confront what he finds there and speak to exactly what is inside of us. Now, what shall we say of John's bedside manners? Rough, right? John's, John's a little rough around the edges in the way that he speaks and the things that he says. But, but the treatment plan that he holds forth for us is a treatment plan that has hope of healing unto life. So today, we're going to approach John, or we're going to allow Matthew to take us up to John. And I, I really 
what I just want to do is work through the text, but uh, it will help be helpful, I think, to have a couple of handholds along the way. So these are just kind of things to think about as we work through this and to organize the thoughts. We'll look at, at the man, John. We'll look at his message. We'll look at the response to the message. We'll look at this idea of fruit that is embedded in the passage as well, and then expectation. Okay, and I think that maps out pretty well what we've got here in front of us. So we begin with the man. John, uh, Matthew immediately introduces us to John by way of his title, John the Baptist. In one sense, that helps us to be able to distinguish him very quickly from John the Gospel writer, John the Apostle. And so John the Baptist is perhaps a way that you can think of uh, having a phone number stored in your phone of somebody whose last name you don't know. Uh, so Joe, the neighbor, uh, or Tom, the neighbor, or Bob, this guy at work uh, that I have. And I'm sure all of us have those type of things in our phones. But of course, when you say John the Baptist, it tells us not only about who he is, but something about the activity of his ministry. John, obviously, baptized people. Now, we can, I think, pretty confidently understand that the majority of the people who were coming out to John for this baptism were Jewish people. And it is striking that he baptizes them. There, there was a custom whereby if somebody was not Jewish, if they were a Gentile and they were coming into the faith, whereby they would be baptized as a way of coming into the Jewish faith. But it was certainly unusual for Jews themselves to be baptized. His baptism seems to be something of a consolidation of Old Testament practices and washings that were associated with uncleanness and with sin. And in that way, as you were baptized by John, two things were happening. On the one hand, it was representing a dying to self. As, as the water came upon you, it was a dying to yourself, to the selfishness, to the sins that were part of your life, while at the same time, there was a cleansing effect from that water, and thus kind of a rising to a new life, or at least to a new resolve with respect to your life, to put the old life behind, to, to make a new resolve and a new commitment, a new return to the Lord. And much of that idea of baptism is paralleled then in Christian baptism as it comes later in the New Testament. But John, as much as he is a baptizer, he's not only a baptizer of people, he is a preacher. So what he, Matthew says about him, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching. John stands squarely in the tradition of Israel's prophets, right? When we, when we look at him, when we listen to his message, there is an unmistakable austerity about him. The, the way that he dresses is reminiscent of, it's almost an imitation of how Elijah the prophet dressed. His diet is simple. It, it reminds you kind of of the, the idea that you would get in the Old Testament when 
the, the nation or an individual was repenting of sin, how they would dress in sackcloth and in ashes and, and accompany it with fasting. That kind of syncs up with this idea that John has here in his ministry as well. He's a simple man. His sanctuary is the wilderness, and his pulpit is out in the middle of essentially nowhere, uh, though enough that people could find him and go to that place, the wilderness, from which God spoke, as we see so often in the Old Testament. In other words, with John, there's nothing to distract. There's, there's nothing to grab our attention about him or about the surroundings. All of the focus is on what he is saying and on what is taking place in our hearts and then in this baptism and in the confession that accompanies it. In word, in action, in dress, in diet, in his location, this man is calling us back unto the Lord. One writer notes this, even the food and dress of John preached. Just what he looked like was a message in and of itself. He is, as verse 3 says for us, he is the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now that's uh, language that is familiar to us, certainly at this time of the year, because we probably read it uh, at least three or four times during the Christmas season. That's Isaiah 40, uh, the first couple of verses of Isaiah 40. More than that is included in some of the other Gospels about John. He is one who is getting things ready. Prepare the way of the Lord. Now, obviously, in the New Testament context, what that means is Jesus is coming. John is saying, get ready. The Lord is coming. Jesus is coming. Here's, here's something just for your encouragement. In the Old Testament, in Isaiah, that is, prepare ye the way for Yahweh, for the covenant God who is coming. And then when we come to the New Testament, that is made completely equivalent with Jesus right away. It's not perhaps an intentional statement, but it's one of the many places where we see the unity between the Father and the Son. Or you could use to describe John the language that we had uh, in our Malachi reading that we had earlier. And this language is picked up in other places where it says, Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. John is the one who is there in the wilderness preparing the way. And, and you know, to use the metaphor, to work the metaphor, John is clearing things out. Right? He, he's clearing out the brush, he's clearing out the things, the obstacles that are in the road, trying to get ready and trying to get the people ready for the coming of the Lord. John is the last in the line of the Old Testament prophets and, of course, most proximate to Jesus himself. So then, what's the message of the man? That's who the man is. What's his message? Verse 2, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now that's obviously an intensified summary of what John's message was, but it's the heart of it. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now three times, uh, twice in addition to the one that I just read for us, this passage talks about repentance. So verse 8, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And verse 11, I baptize you with water for 
repentance. So John joins with, continues with, the call of the Old Testament prophets in calling for a whole life, a whole person, body, soul, mind, heart, words, deeds, a wholesale return to the Lord. Now, in Malachi, uh, the, the last verse of the passage that we read, it's this, from the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Uh, it's a great study to kind of look at this idea of the prophets calling us to return to the Lord. I, I, I did it this week thinking that I would bring to us a number of verses that show how consistent this call is throughout the prophets, but frankly there were too many of them to do that, and this one is representative of all of them. But, but John's in that prophetic line. A return is what he's calling for. We can use the word repentance, but he's calling for a return of people to the Lord. Now, all of the prophets, as we know, if you know anything about the prophets, all of them are urgent and they're all insistent in their call to Israel for their particular time, the place where they were. But John, perhaps even more so because of his proximity to the coming of Christ. Basically, his message is this, confess your sins, acknowledge your guilt, Acknowledge the error of this way that you're walking in a way that is contrary to the way that the Lord would have you to walk and turn away from that and turn back to the Lord. Turn back to Him. Now, at least let's emphasize here for a moment that primarily He is speaking to God's people. To God's people who knew God's acts, who knew God's covenant, who knew the redeeming, the saving work of their God He's calling them who have now drifted away and saying, come back. Listen, you have gone off course. You need to acknowledge that and come back to the Lord. He's speaking to the covenant people who have been faithless. But when their leaders appear, he becomes even more pointed in what he says, right? So verse 7. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you about this? The culpability that is upon the heads of the leaders seems to lead to this type of language. You brood of vipers. You, I want to use this word intentionally, you genealogical offspring of snakes. And, and the reason to use the, the genealogical word there is because it's kind of picking up on the exact same language that we started with in the genealogy of Christ. Right? So this is the genealogy of Jesus Christ, uh, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Well, they come and, and John says to them, let me tell you about your genealogy. Your genealogy is from snakes. You've been begotten by snakes. Now, that's an idea, that's a phrase that is rich and deep in biblical history. And John says to them, listen, who warns you from a wrath that is coming? In other words, wrath is coming. Wrath is coming is what John is saying. Upon the heads of these vipers, this brood of vipers that is that are in front of them. 
Another writer says this, God is not mildly displeased when people sin. He is totally and vigorously opposed to evil, and the Bible expresses this by speaking of his wrath. And so having said that to them, having asserted to them that their genealogy was in fact that of serpents, John, with prophetic insight, anticipates and understands exactly what's going on inside of them. And he can see it coming. It's right about to formulate in their minds, perhaps formulate on their lips as well. What do they want to say? They want to say, text, not, this is not, the text says it plainly. They want to say, uh-uh, uh-uh. That's not our genealogy. We have Abraham as our father. That's what they want to say. They, they want to justify themselves by saying, no, 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 you're wrong. We trace back to Abraham and thus feel good about ourselves. But the, before the words are on their tongue, John cuts them off. And he basically says, don't even try it. Don't even try it. No presumptions, no pretensions, no pedigree is going to save you right now. The axe is at the tree. The axe is at the root of the tree. The judgment is coming. The fire is coming. Don't tell me you're children of Abraham. Don't tell yourselves you're children of Abraham. Now, let's make a parenthetical comment here for just a moment, uh, and then we'll return to uh, the text. The parenthetical comment is this. John is in the prophetic tradition. Let's bring into that some of what we saw in Isaiah, because it fits very well with this particular section. Remember that one of the principles in looking what I, at what Isaiah was saying was the idea of consolidation, which is to say when a prophet sees things, he sees 10, and then at the time you can come in the middle of it and go, oh, okay, there's distance between these things. John speaks of judgment that is coming. In some ways, the language that he is using here is speaking of the final judgment to come. However, Jesus is going to come and will, in fact, bring not only a final judgment at his return, but a present judgment upon the people, the very people who are standing in front of John at that moment. How will that judgment manifest itself? Well, it'll manifest itself within 50 years with the destruction of Jerusalem, and it will manifest itself in the hardening of hearts. The hardening of hearts to the very words that are spoken by John and then are spoken by Jesus as well. And yet there is an, an anticipation in here of other children of Abraham. There's a way for God to raise up other children of Abraham as well. So John's message, in parentheses, John's message is a stern message. It is a hard message. But lest we misunderstand this message... Jesus begins in exactly the same place. If you have your Bibles open, turn over one page. Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's the summary statement of the beginning of Jesus' preaching. It's exactly the same statement that we have with respect to the preaching of John the Baptist as well. And Luke says of John that with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. Good news. Good, how is it good news? Well, it's good news because in repentance, the possibility of forgiveness is held out. 
right now we didn't read all the way in Psalm 51 to this section but you know Psalm 51 it is a psalm of repentance and it says a broken and contrite heart O Lord you will not despise that's where it turns into good news because there's hope for those who are repentant and John's good news is that one is coming as well so you've got the man you've got his message uh, that leads to a response and we can be brief here in describing this response a threefold response verses five and six many come out to him many come out to him and are baptized uh, by John and as they are baptized by John they are confessing their sins so this is a good response to John the leaders and we need to glean this not only from the passage that is in front of us today but from the rest of the gospel as well the leaders, as they come to John, they're a little bit circumspect. And here's the reason they're circumspect. They see that the crowds are kind of with John, that they appreciate John, the ministry of John. They're attracted by John. And so they don't want to immediately say, I'm against John, because then the crowds would turn potentially upon them. So they're a little bit circumspect. They've come out to kind of see what's going on. They've heard this rebuke from John. It won't be till later that we see clearly how against John and his ministry they actually are. The third response is not found in Matthew, but in the other Gospels. And the third response is this. People are confused by John. People can't figure out who he is. And so they begin to ask questions of John and about John. Are you the Christ? Are, are you the prophet, the one who was to come? Are you Elijah? And John's reply is, of course, no. I'm the voice of one crying in the wilderness. In effect, what John is saying, if we can kind of put this in John the Gospel writer's language, John is saying to them, I am not the sun. I am the moon. I am the moon testifying in the midst of a dark world that just over the horizon, on the other side, and getting ready to crest up from the horizon, is the light. And when the light comes in, what will happen is he must increase and I must decrease because all of us know from common observation, that's what happens, right? The moon looks nice and bright until you see the moon against the sun. And then the moon doesn't look like anything. It looks white and distant compared to the sun itself. For John then, there becomes another way. How, how do you measure this response how do you make sense of the response? How do you test the genuineness of this repentance that has been professed? And this is where we get into the fruit idea. Two verses are going to guide us here. Verse 10 says this, Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And then verse 8 makes this even more clear. Verse 8 says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Now, to show continuity, Paul says almost exactly this same thing in Acts 26. Paul, when he's before King Agrippa on trial, says this, Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and then throughout all of the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. Deeds in keeping with their repentance. Fruit 
in keeping with repentance. That phraseology preserves two things, and I'm going to say this briefly, and I hope uh, it, can, it can make sense as I say it. First, it preserves the distinction between repentance and its fruit. Okay, bring forth fruit that is in conjunction with, in keeping with the repentance that you have offered. The importance of that is seen if we think more about it on the level of faith and works, faith and fruit. Okay, so bring forth fruit in keeping with your faith could be exactly something that we would say as well. Bring forth fruit in keeping with your repentance. Those are two things that are distinct. And the second thing that that phraseology preserves is that they can't ever be separated. Once you've been clear that there is a distinction between these things, then you draw a circle around them and say, these two things go together as well. That's the way the Lord works by the power of his spirit, that when we genuinely repent, then the spirit is at work producing good fruit in our lives. So John is not looking for people who want to look good. He's not looking for people who want to be in the right place at the right time, saying the right words, who are caught up in the drama of the moment, this guy out in the wilderness who's baptizing. For John and for Paul, we can say it with our common idiom, the proof is in the pudding. The proof is in the pudding. The proof of the sincerity of the repentance is in the pudding itself. Today, we confessed our sins together as we do each week. But the proof is in the pudding. The proof of the genuineness of repentance is the fruit that comes from repentance. So a natural question is, what's the fruit? What's the fruit that we're talking about? Here in this particular section, Matthew doesn't answer what the fruit is. Instead, he lets Jesus answer it by the Sermon on the Mount, which will begin in chapter 5 and use some of the exact same language and the exact same images that are used in this discussion here. But in the Gospel of Luke, there is an answer to this question, and I think it's worth hearing what John says in this. So, so the same phrase is given, if you don't bear good fruit, you're cut down, thrown into the fire, and the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? What shall we do? In other words, what's the fruit? What are you talking about here? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. Fruit then corresponds with, it lines up with what you have confessed, right? What did you confess? at the moment of your baptism, leading up to your baptism. What was your confession? Well, the fruit that I'm looking for is that exact thing, turned in reverse. And fruit lines up with your station, your situation in life. So fruit isn't mysterious. It's not elusive. Uh, this is not talking about some exotic fruit that you've got to go somewhere to find. Instead, 
the fruit that John is talking about is quotidian. If we can bring that back to a sermon back in November. The fruit is quotidian. It's the stuff of everyday life. That's what, these, that, that's what all of these things were. You know, whether you were a soldier or whether you were a tax collector or somebody else. It's, it's the day-to-day stuff. That's where you're going to see the fruit of repentance. It's in front of us. It is accessible to us. And all of that's true. But there's a problem. Here's the problem. Prophets have been calling on God's people to turn, to return, to repent for a thousand plus years. And there's a problem. The problem isn't with the confession of the sins, nor with the understanding of the fruit, nor with the preaching, or the message, nor the prophets, nor the sacramental signs and seals. Here's the problem. The problem is that there is a hole in the bucket of our hearts and of our wills, and our penitential resolve leaks out of the bucket every time we fill it up. We've got a leak in us. We've got a leak in our hearts and our wills. And the the resolve, all right, I hear you, John. No No more will I do those things. We all know what this then looks like in our lives. We can use the perhaps the more familiar language, the Pauline language. I can will what is right. But, but, if telling us to repent of our sins and do the right thing were enough, then John would be an end in and of himself. If that's all it took. If that's all it took was when you did something wrong and the law or someone told you that's the wrong thing, you should do the right thing, that's all it took, John's an end. Or the prophets are an end in and of themselves. But John does not see himself as an end in any way, shape, or form. That's where the text goes. John is expectant. We need a prophet, but we need a prophet that is greater than John. We need the prophet. We need the Christ. We need someone who is mightier than John and a baptism that, frankly, is more effective than John's baptism. And to this point, We've seen, or at least I've tried to show us, the continuity that exists in the ministry of John. The continuity that exists with what was in the past, the prophetic ministry. The continuity with the ministry of Jesus, who will likewise talk about the kingdom of heaven being at hand, repent therefore, who will talk likewise about the tree and its fruit. The continuity with the Pauline ministry, calling people to repent and to bear fruit and keeping with repentance. We can talk about all of that continuity, but as John gets to the end here of this section, he breaks the line. He says, wait, 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 wait. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying here. We are looking for something else, for someone else, someone mightier than I am. Remember when we worked through the genealogy? The genealogy went, this person is the father of this person, the father of this person, the father of this person, the father of this person. We get all the way down to Joseph. We expect to hear Joseph, the father of David. And Matthew says, whoop, break. 
break, it breaks right there, right at that point. Why? Because we need something else. We need, we need someone who's kind of part of the line, but then steps out of it as well. And that's what John does here in his ministry. He's got continuity with all these things, but he gets to the point where he breaks the line and he says, listen, there's one who is coming whose water will truly cleanse and whose water will, by the power of the Spirit, whose water will be like fire. <laughs> That's a great juxtaposition of two terms. Whose water will be like fire. He will make this baptism of repentance work and be effective. There's a tone to John's ministry. There is a different tone to the ministry of Christ. I think John is reflecting the exact same idea that I put on the front of your bulletins from Ezekiel 36. I, the Lord, will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all the idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. That's something different. That's the mightier one who is to come. That's the work that Christ and Christ alone can accomplish. It is this Jesus who does this. And John, who leapt in his mother's womb when he heard the voice of Mary, insists that the difference between him, the difference between what he is doing, the call that he has, and how effective the call that he has is, the difference between him and the one who is coming is the difference between night and day. Night and day. Darkness and light, comparatively speaking. So John is provocative. And as we hear him, as, as we hear his words, we can let his person, his message, provoke us. It can, it can stir us. It can, it can make us look at our own lives. But you can't stop there. You have to let him do what he is desperate to do. He is the one who is preparing the way. He is getting things ready. He's clearing out the path so that you can see clearly. And John's good news is going to sound like this to you. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's what it's ultimately going to be sounding like. It's ultimately not lodged in your repentance that's good enough. It's in the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, changes the heart so that we can follow after the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would help us to see Jesus. John would have us behold the Lamb. We pray that that's what we would do. And Lord, continually provoke our hearts. You've willed that the entire life of man would be one of repentance. We pray that it would be, that we would continue to strive after you with every part of our being. And we pray that by your grace, by the efficacy of the work of Christ, the indwelling of the Spirit, that good fruit would be born in our lives. 
and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.